We're continuing our look at the life of Joseph, looking at the second half of Genesis 42 tonight. This can be found in your pew Bibles on page 35, page 35 in your pew Bibles. Genesis 42. Remember last time the brothers came to visit Joseph and he made a little deal with them that if they left Simeon behind and they went home and brought Benjamin back, he would believe that they weren't spies. So now the brothers have gone back to Jacob and they've got this tale to tell, but there's one little wrinkle that gets thrown in. Genesis 42, verse 26. They, the brothers, loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. When one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money at the top of the sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in my sack. At this they lost heart and turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly to us and charged us with spying on the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father now in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me. Take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, and I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. Then I will release your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each one's sack was his bag of money. When they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. And their father Jacob said to them, I am the one you have bereaved of children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and now you would take Benjamin. All this has happened to me. Then Reuben said to his father, You may kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If harm should come to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is the word of the Lord. What is this that God has done to us? What is this that God has done to us? The brothers are convinced that God is paying them back for their treatment of their brother. They see God as the big person who evens out the scales, the person in charge of karma. He is constantly dealing it out. You messed up over here, you get payback over here. That's their vision of God. What is this that God has done to us? They go to Jacob to give him the story, tell him the deal. This is, the, this is, this is what's happening. This is why we don't have Simeon now. And we hear in Jacob's words the rawness of his grief over the loss of Joseph. 
Now this is 20-year-old grief. This is old grief. But it's like it was last week. It is so raw to him. He feels so horrible about this. You bereaved me of my children, he says to them. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin? And Reuben makes this really interesting offer. Make your deal, Dad. You could kill my two kids if I don't bring them back. That's how strong I am. That's how committed I am. So helpful. Because you know what this family needs is a little bit more death and mayhem. You could kill my two kids. But what we see in Reuben is his own attempt to work out what he couldn't work out 20 years ago. He tried 20 years ago to talk his brothers into letting Joseph go. It didn't work. He feels like he's to blame, like it's his fault. And so he tries with his dad. Just, you can kill my two sons. Let me make this right. Jacob doesn't even answer him. Doesn't even acknowledge that he said anything. He says, no. And then to make all the rest of the sons feel really good, he says, I have one son left. (laughs) To all of his sons. I have one son left. You don't get him either. His brother's dead. He's the only one left. That's it. (laughs) Leave me alone. And what Jacob is really saying here is, I can't bear another broken heart. I can't bear another broken heart. I can't do it. I can't do it. I know that Simeon is off there in jail, but what you are asking of me, I simply cannot do. I cannot take that risk. I cannot lay myself out there again. I cannot bear another broken heart. And even though in this passage he's incredibly self-absorbed and he's incredibly ignorant of the grief and pain of his own sons, even though in this passage he has all these conflicted emotions going on and he's not in any way a model for anything, We can really relate to that. I can't bear another broken heart. When you're dating somebody and then you break up, you go through a while where you're like, I'm not dating anybody ever again. Nope, too painful, not doing it. Gonna be a cursory form monk. (laughs) It's not worth it. Not doing it again. You try out for choir, you don't get in. You say, that's it, I'm not trying out for capella ever again. Not even oratorio. Not doing it. Not worth the risk. Not worth the pain. You try for a student leadership position. You say, that's it, I'm not trying to be an RA ever again. They don't want me. Fine. It's not worth it. I'm not putting myself out there ever again. I'm not going to take the risk. I can't bear another broken heart. And because we believe that God is in charge of these things, that God is sovereign and in control, 
and that our world belongs to God, all these wonderful things that we say. When our hearts get broken, one of the other people that we pull back from is God. I'm not getting close to you again because you just keep breaking my heart. You just keep making things too hard. And so we pull back from God. What is this that God has done to me? What is this that God has done to me? Albert Einstein was once asked, what is the most crucial question for humankind to figure out? And he said the most crucial question for humankind is this, is the universe friendly? Because he said if you view the universe as being friendly, when you go out to explore it and you run into mystery, you run into things that you don't understand, you're going to assume that the universe is acting in a good way toward you, that the universe is being friendly, and you just got to wait a while to figure out exactly how that's going to be revealed. But if you believe the universe is not friendly, then you're going to approach it with the air of a skeptic and as a threat and as an assault. I think one of the crucial questions of the Christian life to figure out is, is God friendly? And by that we don't mean like, is he friendly, friend? Like, grab your hand, walk down the merry lane kind of friend. But is God for you? Is God on your side? Because there are so many opportunities in life where we put ourselves out there and our hearts get broken and it's really hard to know, is God for me? When I was a little kid growing up, it was kind of the waning years of the Cold War and it was very clear to us that our enemies were the Russians. The Russians were the enemy, they were the bad guy. And we would talk in my Christian school about uh, laying down your life for Jesus. Would you lay down your life for Jesus? And when everybody talked about that, I had this image that someday the Russians would take over America. And they would come in to my classroom and they would line us all up against the back wall and they would say to us one by one, do you believe in Jesus? And if we said yes, then they would kill us. That's what I thought that meant. Like, would you lay down your life for Jesus? Would you die for your faith? And I thought, I would die for my faith. I didn't realize that dying for your faith happens in a lot of little ways all along the road. And one of the things that I've realized that I need to die to is who I think God is. Mary Carr was here this week for the Festival of Faith and Writing. She's one of my all-time favorite human beings. She's just so irreverent and funny and she's from Texas and has this little twang and then she'll like throw out a cuss word and then talk about Ignatius and spiritual direction like in the next sentence and it's just lovely. <laughs> and um, 
she talks about gumball prayers. You know, she's like, God knows that every now and then I'd like a gumball prayer. Like, I want to put my penny in and get a gumball. Right? And I was listening to her, I thought, yeah. I, yes, that's a lot of my prayer life. It's like, put the penny in, gumball. Put the penny in, gumball, put the penny in, hello. Right? I gotta die to the idea that God is a giant gumball dispenser. What is this that God has done? No gumballs? <laughs> and then I realized that I had to die to the idea that God and I had a bit of an agreement that if I was good, He would be good to me. If I was obedient in my life, he would respond by giving me blessings. That sounds like a good deal, right? I mean, overall, it works with your teachers. It works with your parents, right? It works with your college chaplain. <laughs> if you are good, you get blessings. This is the way it works. This is the contract arrangement that we are in as human beings. You behave, you get a blessing. It works with my dog, for Pete's sake. <laughs> Zoe, sit. Oh, good girl. Treat. So I have this idea that if I'm good, this is how my life is supposed to go. The problem was, that's not so much biblical. Because when you look at the life of Jesus, no one could be more obedient. And he did not have a very good life. People betrayed him and nobody understood him and his disciples drove him crazy. John the Baptist died, he goes off by himself to pray, he comes back, everyone's like, do things for us please. So we have these ideas about God that are just wrong and they need to die. But the challenge is when they die, it's like, then what do we do? Who, what is this? What is this that God has done for us? Who is this? Who is this God if it's not that? Who is this God if it's not that? because my heart is still broken. I would really like the gumball. I would really like the contract guarantee. I would really like to have my heart not be broken. Parker Palmer was also here this week, another author who writes about vocation and courage and calling. And he talked about the Midrash, the Jewish commentary on the passage of scripture that talks about laying the commandments on your heart. And the rabbis were asked, why does it say lay the commandments on your heart rather than take them in your heart, put them in your heart? And the rabbi said, because your heart is too hard. 
and you need God to break your heart open. And when your heart gets broken open, then the Word of God can settle into it. And Parker Palmer looked out at us and he said, you need to allow your heart to be broken open rather than apart. In this story we read from Genesis, Jacob's heart is broken apart. It is broken apart. The brothers, it says in our translation, they lose heart. They are broken apart. What is this that God has done? You will bring my head with its gray hairs in sorrow down to Sheol. My heart is broken apart. And if this were the only chapter we had of this story, if this were our snapshot of this family, we would say, yeah, yeah. Protect your heart. Guard it. Because miserable things happen to you. But we know better. Because we've been looking at this story for a while. And we know that even though the only time the word God is mentioned in this particular section of Scripture, it's when the brothers think that he's got it out for them. Even though Jacob is in no way trusting anybody with his most precious possession. Even though there are all these signs that say that this God is not worthy of trust, that things are going from bad to worse really fast, they still have a brother who's off in jail. We know the bigger picture. Because we remember that in this story we have seen God at work again and again and again. We have seen God reveal himself in dreams. We have seen the narrator weave these images through about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We have seen the narrator use the word recognize again and again and again. Do you recognize? Do you recognize? Is he recognizing? He's not recognizing. We see in one chapter very clearly the narrator says again and again when things are going horrible and he's accused by Potiphar's wife and Joseph ends up in jail. You know what it says again and again and again? The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And so we get to this, the second half of chapter 42, and it looks like things are going really bad for this family. And we need to just take a break. And remember who we're dealing with here. Because this is a God who is always up to something. He is always up to something. And all of the chapters that lead us up to this chapter remind us that God is for this family. He is for Joseph. He is for Jacob. He is for these brothers, even though they can't see it. Even though they feel like their hearts are blown apart. God is for this family. Because we know what happens to this family. You've read ahead to the end of the story. You know that reconciliation is on the horizon. But beyond that, you know that one of these sons, Judah, from him will come the Messiah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
Jesus, who has a pretty hard life, but Jesus, who loves broken-hearted people. Jesus spends more time with broken-hearted people than any other people. Broken-hearted people are Jesus' favorite people because broken-hearted people stop shaking the gumball machine. And broken-hearted people stop waiting for God to sign his name on the contract. Broken-hearted people just come up to Jesus and sit and eat and are often healed and are always loved. You need to ask for your heart to be broken open rather than apart, says Parker Palmer. Because when your heart is broken open, then you stop shaking the gumball machine. You stop waiting for God to come through in the way you expect him to do. When your heart is broken open, you really believe that God is for you. And even though there may be so many things where it seems like he isn't, you're going to believe the whole story. You're going to believe the whole thing. That Jesus Christ, who is near to the brokenhearted, also died and rose again so that we can die to all these really miserable images of who God is and be raised to new life. We can do those thousand little deaths that we need to do in order to be raised as fully believing, fully passionate, fully broken, open followers of Jesus. God is for you. He really is. I'm not just saying it. He really is for you. He really is for me. God is for you. We don't know the shape that that takes all the time. But we do know that the promise is true and that it will hold. He who did not withhold his own son from us, will he not also along with him graciously give us everything else? God is for you. that the worship apprentices are going to hand out postcards. And we invite you to finish the sentence that's on the back. It says, God is for me because. And then just write short little ways in which you see God being for you. And then after a time, we're going to invite you to come up to the microphones if you want and just read them. And we're going to share testimony together about the ways in which God is for us. And simply by hearing the testimonies of each other, we will be reminded that this is who our God is, that God is for us.